This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. We're the regional wholesaler for Southern California. So we're the ones that bring in water from the Colorado River and the Sacramento River, treat it, and deliver it to our customers. We have 19 million people in our service area. One out of 17 people in the United States live in our service area, that 150 by 50 mile chunk of land. The challenges facing the Colorado River are daunting. Climate scientists suggest that Colorado River is more susceptible to climate change than any other river in the United States. To me, it makes sense because the concept of climate change is where it's sunniest, the earth heats up and the greenhouse gases keep that heat at the surface. And where is it sunnier than anywhere else in the United States? The Colorado River Basin. This episode also comes to you from Los Angeles and is the companion to the episode about the recycled water program in Southern California. Spending a week in Los Angeles to look at water, to ask people on the streets what they know about their water, to interview the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California about how they import river water from hundreds of miles away offered me many perspectives on those answers and on the hydrological stability of rivers of the southwestern United States and of California. This companion episode is a sit-down conversation with a person who has been working in California water for decades and directly with the Colorado River for the past 20 years. My guest is Bill Hazenkamp, manager of Colorado River Resources for Metropolitan Water. In my experience, interviewing and talking with water managers is a mix of candid, honest statements about water and the predetermined, canned answers for the media. This interview definitely had some of the latter, Yet it moved into very frank and intense clarifications about providing water to 19 million humans in Southern California, how rivers will continue to be impacted by this, and how the Colorado River Delta is likely to continue to suffer. This summer, there's been a lot of media talking about how Lake Mead and Lake Powell have dropped, how fires and dry conditions are dominant, how living conditions in the Southwest United States have become sketchy. My purpose here with these two episodes is to go deeper on those topics to talk with a mega water district that moves water over desert mountains to hydrate an urban ecosystem and to hear how they have done this for a century and how they plan to continue doing so in light of reduced water supplies. On a beautiful day this summer, far from rivers, I sat in a 12th floor office of the Metropolitan Water District just above Union Station in downtown Los Angeles to learn more about Southern California water. We start with Bill Hazenkamp telling us his name and more about his life and work. Bill Hazenkamp. Are you from Los Angeles? Fourth generation. My great-grandfather owned a bookbinding company in the late 1800s in downtown LA. Only 100,000 people back then. <laughs> I managed Metropolitan's Colorado River Resources. as everything to do with the power supplies, the water transfers, and the water coming into Southern California from the Colorado River. Can you explain what Metropolitan water is? Yeah, we're the regional wholesaler for Southern California. So we're the ones that bring in water from the Colorado River and the Sacramento River, treat it and deliver it to our customers. We have 26 customers, our 26 member agencies, whether it's cities like the city of LA or water districts like San Diego County Water Authority. We're the wholesaler and then they're in charge of delivering it to the actual customers. And our responsibility is to make sure that we have a, a sufficient supply of adequate high quality water to meet current and future needs for all of Southern California. We have 19 million people in our service area. 
one of the fastest growing areas over the last uh, 50 years. How long have you been here at MET? 20 years. And did you have a background prior to joining MET in water? Yeah, I started my water career working for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power up in Owens Valley. I was involved in the Mona Lake water right case back in the 1990s and learned a lot about the trade-offs between the urban needs and the environmental needs and the politics involved with that. After that, I went to Contra Costa Water District in Northern California, got involved in issues surrounding the Bay Delta and uh, the challenges there. Again, the trade-off between environment, ag, and urban needs. And now I've been managing our Colorado River supplies for the last 20 years. Los Angeles and Southern California had some water available for their region in rivers and underground aquifers, and that was enough in the late 1800s. But once the word got out about how nice the year-round weather is in Southern California, Lots of Americans were moving west to have the desert sun, the beaches, moderate temperatures, and to get in on the growing economy. Hollywood was on the rise with its first film coming out in 1910, and by the 1930s, it was center stage of the film industry. Route 66 was a funnel from middle America ending right at Santa Monica on the Pacific Ocean. Southern California hit its first 1 million people in the early 1900s, 10 million people in the 1960s, and today, there are about 19 million people in the Metropolitan Water District. There were fruit trees, freedom, and beaches. What else could you want? Water. Water that is not salt water. And the municipal water supplies they had were not enough. So back when my great-grandfather had his bookbinding company in downtown Los Angeles, and there were 100,000 people, the Angelinos got their water from the Los Angeles River and groundwater in the region. And they had a whole series of irrigation ditches and diversion ditches that went to people's houses all through the city on its way down through the basin. But it was quickly realized that that water wasn't enough for a growing population. And William Mulholland started looking for a new source of water for Los Angeles. And he looked to the Owens Valley in the eastern Sierras, the Mammoth Lakes area, and uh, determined that there's a vast amount of water in that region that could help supply Los Angeles. So he built the Los Angeles Aqueduct, and in 1913, water from the Owens River flowed across the desert into Southern California, or into Los Angeles, allowing it to grow. And the, at that time, the San Fernando Valley was mostly orange groves and other citrus crops. So it was mostly irrigation water that was needed at the time. Now they thought at the time that was enough water for a 50-year supply, but Los Angeles continued to grow and it was clear that as an abundant supply as that was, that wasn't enough to meet the growing demands. So then William Mahone looked to the Colorado River, but he realized that, or the city realized that Los Angeles didn't have enough capital to fund a project on its own. So they partnered with the other cities in the region, a total of 13 cities, to pool their resources to get enough funding to build an aqueduct from the Colorado River to Southern California. And to form an agency to do that, they formed the Metropolitan Water District, with our one mission at the time was to get water from the Colorado River and bring it into Southern California. And in 1941, the first water from the Colorado River arrived in our region to the 13 cities, which we began to add other cities and water agencies up to our current 26 member agencies. That goes from San Diego in the south, all the way to Ventura in the north, and as far inland as Riverside. It's about 150 miles long and 50 or 60 miles wide. And we thought when the Colorado River Aqueduct was built, that was going to be enough water for several generations. 
But following World War II and the fighting in Japan with many people from the East Coast stopping in the LA area on their way out to Hawaii and Japan, they fell in love with the region and uh, we had another population boom. And by the 1960s, we realized the Colorado River Aqueduct wasn't enough either. So we worked with Pat Brown. Pat Brown was governor in the 1950s and 60s. The father of our recent governor, Jerry Brown, we agreed to fund half of the cost of the state water project, the largest project of its kind in the world at that time, moving more water over a greater distance over more mountains than any other project had undertaken. And we agreed to pay half of the cost of building that project, which was a big financial commitment. Today, that's one third of our total budget. Uh, we have a $2 billion annual budget. A third of that goes to pay off the debt associated with the state water project. And we've been bringing water in from Northern California and the Bay Delta. The first water arrived in the 1970s. So we have water coming in from the LA Aqueduct, the Colorado River, and Northern California. So that's a bit about Met's role is working with our member agencies, bringing water from faraway places, storing it to making sure that Southern California can continue to grow from 100,000 people in LA 130 years ago to 19 million people today. While it might be easy to interpret the history of water in Southern California as quaint, as storybook, there's a lot of that story that is dark. William Mulholland did lead a lot of the water development projects that hydrate Southern California that were effective then and are still used today. And those projects have created immense environmental damage and ignored the water evaporation and the ground seepage that significantly reduces water availability. One project was leading to the disappearance of Mono Lake, a body of water critical for migrating birds. There were instances of the Los Angeles aqueduct being dynamited by the farmers who did not want their water sources taken away regardless of any contracts. And then there is St. Francis Dam that was built under the guidance of Mulholland and created water storage for Los Angeles. After many clues of potential failure, in 1928, this dam failed. It gave way. And all of the water behind the dam raced down valleys and riverbeds, killing well over 400 people. Mulholland took full responsibility for the collapse, and this closed out his career. So, while the story can be contained as supportive measures for the growing metro area of Southern California, it is also a story of fighting and pain. In the episode notes in your podcast player, there are links that go into these stories. We'll be back with more about water in Southern California after this message from today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Jack's Plastic Welding. My boat, my dry bags, and my Paco pad are all from Jack's Plastic Welding for a few reasons. The gear they build is tough, and I'm hard on my boat gear. Not because I'm running first to sense or anything, it's more that I'm just running into rocks and getting stuck or coming into shore a bit hard. Jack's gear can handle it. Another reason I go with Jack's Plastic Welding is because they are typically doing something with inflatable technology that is helping people, or rivers, or the oceans. We've talked about how they help raise up baby coral for reefs in past episodes. Today, you will hear from Jack himself about the Paco Pad and a desalinization project he is working on. This is Jack, AKA Paco. My name is Jack Klepfer. I was the founder of Jack's Plastic Welding back in 1983. They've called me Paco a lot of times. That was my nickname. That happened because one of my friends started calling it Paco Pad. I originally didn't call it a Paco pad, but you know, that just 
you know, alliteration is nice. So that's what we started calling it. This desalinization project is called Waves to Water. And what it is, is it's a disaster relief project where you put the entire system in a relatively small box that can be dropped from an airplane to a disaster location. And the only thing that you need to make it work is waves. In the middle of this episode, Jack will talk more about the desalinization project and the contest he's involved in. You can find Jack's Plastic online at www.jpwinc.com. That is www.jpwinc.com. As the Intermountain West and the West Coast were developing, it was becoming clear that water was not as abundant as it is in the eastern half of the United States. And California was developing fast and using up water from the long Colorado River that begins in the mountains of northern Colorado and eventually flows down the border between Arizona and California on its way to Mexico and the Colorado River Delta at the Gulf of California. In 1922, the seven states that had access to the Colorado River eventually rallied up together to divvy up the waters of this long sediment-filled river, creating what would be called the Colorado River Compact. California started aggressively using water from the Colorado River in the 1900s. Imperial Valley was a great place to grow crops. Almost never rains out there, and they can grow crops year-round because the weather's perfect for, for crops. Not great for living, for growing crops is great. And they could easily get water from the Colorado River by gravity. So they were using a lot of water. And at the same time, Metropolitan was getting its approval to build its aqueduct to the Colorado River. Uh, in 1906, however, there was a big flood and it broke out of the flood controlled banks and the whole river flowed uncontrollably into the Salton Sink for 18 months, forming the Salton Sea. So it was clear that they were finally able to get the river back in its banks, but it was clear that we needed a dam in order to fully develop the Colorado River because it was so wild, so out of control that if there wasn't a dam, you couldn't reliably use that water. And the site for the dam that was chosen was Black Canyon near present-day Las Vegas. So California was pushing for a dam to be built, and we needed Congress to approve it. The other six states were concerned, however, because under the normal water rights, the law of first-in-time, first-in-right applies. And California was developing much faster than the other six states. So if a dam was built without any future assurances, California could take the lion's share of the river and have a higher priority than the other six states in perpetuity. So in order to get the other states buy-in, in 1922, 99 years ago, the seven states went to Santa Fe, New Mexico and agreed on a compact. And at the time, they thought there was about 18 million acre feet, and they had only a 20-year record. So in those negotiations, they gave half of it to the upper basin, seven and a half million, half of it to the lower basin, seven and a half million, and reserved another chunk which became a million and a half for Mexico later. And they thought there was plenty, 18 million was enough to meet all that plus a little extra. And, and with that, there was certainty that even if California were developed first, the upper basin would have half of the river guaranteed, even though it, they knew it would take them decades to, to, to build that. Of course, now we know over time that the flow of the river is not 18 million, over the last 100 years has been 15 million, and over the last 20 years has been 13.2 million. So nowhere near enough to meet the allocations in the compact. 
This mention of how many acre feet the seven states expected the Colorado River to create each year is central to so many problems that exist today for the Colorado River. Two of the dams that followed the Colorado Compact created Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which are now by volume capacity the two largest reservoirs respectively in the United States, yet they have barely been full nor near full in their existence simply because the Colorado River does not create the water that this compact is based on. There are arguments that they didn't have the river flow knowledge at the time, yet historical research shows that they did have the proper studies that could have guided their compact, but they didn't use those studies. It appears that the entire damming of rivers in the Colorado River Basin are based off of inaccurate studies in all of these water districts, not just in California, but across each of the seven states, expects to obtain more water than the basin creates. And so the little bit of water that was supposed to go to Mexico for their use, because they are also along this watershed, doesn't really happen. And the other small amount that would maintain the Colorado River as a river all the way to the ocean also doesn't happen. And so, since the damming of the Colorado, this river has not consistently or even infrequently provided water and sediment to its delta or the ocean. With this over-allocation that you're talking about, from 18 to 15 to 13.2, what are you seeing? You know, Lake Mead is dropping, Lake Powell is dropping. These things are getting down to, to the levels where there's concern around electric production. You know, from my perspective, it feels like they're not coming back. There's potential new extractions, the, the Lake Powell pipeline. Annual flows seem to be continuing to decrease in the Colorado. What's, what, what's your thoughts from your position at MET on these flows, on your access to the Colorado, your ability to depend on that massive water supply for your 19 million people? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The challenges facing the Colorado River are daunting. Climate scientists suggest that Colorado River is more, more susceptible to climate change than any other river in the United States because the concept of climate change is where it's sunniest, the earth heats up and the greenhouse gases keep that heat at the surface. And where is it sunnier than anywhere else in the United States? The Colorado River Basin. Uh, you're right, Lake Mead is at its lowest level ever. Lake Powell is headed to its lowest level ever. And uh, the projections of the climate science say things are likely to get worse. So we know we're going to have to go below 4.4 at some level. We're about to enter into some pretty significant negotiations among the seven states. The current rules on the river all expire December 31st, 2025. So over the next four years, we're going to develop a plan as difficult as it's going to be for us to live with these less allocations. And we're gonna to have to figure out how to share the shortages among each state. And there is a priority system and there are rules, but we also recognize we're all in the boat together. We all have to cut back. No one is gonna be exempt in this process. But I'm optimistic based on the history that we've had. And not just California, Nevada and Arizona have also reduced their use in recent years. And we're going to have to do a lot more of that to have a sustainable Colorado River going forward. You've talked about some of the things that MET has done to help bring down your use of water. What's next? What are the next projects that MET is looking at? And we're going to dig in on this recycled water project, but what else is MET looking at doing to reduce your water consumption? The next stage, I think, is 
things like stormwater capture haven't in the past played out as a big component because of some of the costs, but I think figuring out innovative ways to capture it and put it into groundwater basins and increase the permeability in some of our regions in the city so it can the ground can absorb more water and not have it go out to the ocean. There's going to be a lot of innovative ways to try to figure out how to squeeze water out of options that were infeasible in the past because they were too expensive or too difficult. San Diego County recently did the largest desalination plant in the nation. I don't, I don't know that desalination is going to be the panacea for the future of Southern California. It's certainly a, going to be a key piece, but it takes a lot of energy to desalt water. But nonetheless, desalination will be part of the future. Talk more about desal. Are there projects being worked on to make that desal less energy consumptive, to not have all the leftover brine after you're doing it, to make it more suitable, easier to bring it into the game? So the technology keeps getting better. Still, it takes more energy to desalt water than it does to pump it over the mountains from Northern California. So there's that carbon footprint issue that is part of the challenging. Now, as we can get better technology to use less energy, that helps. But that's still a concern. And another concern is generally people don't like desalination plants on the coast. There's just a general feeling of keep our coast pristine. The people that live here love the ocean. And a lot of the, the Surfrider Foundation and other people are not thrilled about having desalination plants on the coast. So what we've done up to this point is co-locate them with already existing power plants. So we use the same intake. So we're not building new intakes, we're using existing intakes. So there's a certain extent where you can use facilities that are already there, uh, but to build new ones is very difficult because it's very unpopular in California. It feels like we should invite California people to come to the Colorado River and see the things that are happening to it. You know, because it's that like kind of not in my backyard, but let me take the water from your backyard kind of idea. Desal is, it will have a role for sure. And, and particularly a, a, a role for desal will be in a place that there's not existing facility to get them water. If, if you have to build a new pipeline to serve an area and instead you could build a desalination plant, that makes a lot of sense. But what we're finding is what's a better choice than desal is water recycling, right? We have hundreds of thousands of acre feet going into the ocean of treated wastewater. Capturing that one takes less energy to treat wastewater and reuse it than it does to desalt ocean water because it's the salt, getting the salt out that takes a lot. So one is less energy to treat it, to re recycle it. Two is that generally people don't want wastewater going into the ocean. So if you can prevent the wastewater from going to the ocean and recycle it, then the environmentalists like that as a benefit as opposed to putting brine in the ocean, it's a win-win for the environmental community and takes less energy. It's still a difficult project because you don't have a lot of storage to, you know, treat these large volumes. So you have to build storage and a, and a system to get it back up to where the treatment plants are. So the water recycling plant, for example, includes pipelines to pipe it back 30, 40 miles inland to reuse it. And yet that means digging through city streets, which is difficult. But I think that is a more promising, bigger picture that people can embrace. And it's, 
it is in their backyard, but they can embrace water recycling more than seawater desalination. So yesterday I was able to get the eyes on tour of your recycled water plant. It's a demonstration facility right now. And obviously you know these things. You're doing a lot of testing. Um, I had a great tour of the place and learned a lot. It doesn't feel like it's that much water that will be recycled. How much water do you anticipate MET being able to eventually recycle and, and put back into the system? Well, for, for that one project at Buildout would be about 170,000 acre feet of water per year. That's 10% of our current demand for imported water. So that one project could reduce our demands by 10%. The two big plants that treat wastewater in LA County are the the LA County Sanitation Plant that we're partnering with, and then Hyperion, which is the city of LA. And city of LA is looking at their own project with the Hyperion Wastewater Treatment Plant. So both of those could produce a significant amount of water. And San Diego is also looking at the same thing with their plant at Point Loma, recycling that water. And Orange County is doing this already. There are They've been doing it for many decades, yes. And are the other consumers, the other customers of Met looking at doing this as well? You have 26 consumers? So we have been providing incentives for decades and they have been doing it. And as I said, 10% of our current demand is met through recycled water, but they tend to be smaller projects because the member agencies don't have the resources to do a big project like we're contemplating doing. But if you go to Griffith Park, all of Griffith Park is recycled water. The golf course is up there. Um, there's two golf courses. That's been using recycled water for a long time. Many of the, the, the medians on the freeway, there's many other golf courses that are recycled water. Eastern Municipal Water District recycles their water and puts it in the ground just like Orange County. So smaller projects have been going on throughout the region for decades. This talk of recycled water and how it is used and will be used in the future deserves clarity. Currently, there are many recycled water uses in Southern California, like irrigating parks and trees. And in some situations, it is pumped back into groundwater storage and then run again through the initial cleaning phase before it goes into the municipal system for human consumption. As of today, recycled water does not, I repeat, does not go from post-sewage treatment directly back to the cleaning for use in the municipal system. Regulations prevent that from happening. What Metropolitan Water is doing is learning how to clean post-sewage treatment water well enough that it can go directly into the municipal system. Another important detail is that the amount of water MET imports each year changes simply based on what is available from the Colorado and Sacramento rivers. So this year, they are importing 1.7 million acre-feet. In other years, they might import more. So the idea that this one recycled water plant is accounting for 10% of their total water needs is not totally solid. That imported water number will change year to year. Also, they do have some local sources that are not being included. So this recycled water plant really accounts for about 6% of this year's total water needs. We'll be back with more about water in Southern California after this message from today's sponsor. Jack's Plastic Welding is sponsoring today's episode about the recycled water project in Southern California. The crew at Jax Plastic is always working on clever ways to integrate inflatable technology into real-world needs. That might be tools that contain oil spills or tools to raise baby coral for coral reef rehab. Here again is Jack from Jax Plastic Welding explaining more about the desalinization project they are working on and the contest they have entered. 
This desalinization project is called Waves to Water and it's a challenge grant. It comes in five phases. Our idea was chosen, so we got some money to pursue our idea. It's a disaster relief project where you put the entire system in a relatively small box that can be dropped from an airplane to a disaster location. And I thought, well, that would be great if you had an inflatable because part of the problem is getting it in the box. I don't think people realize how strong inflatables can be when they're under pressure. So my partner in the UK, he makes wave energy converters. It's not creating electricity at all. What it does is it takes the energy from the wave and pressurizes that energy. That pressure is increased with the pressure intensifier and then it is turned into desalinated water with a reverse osmosis membrane. We're in the semifinals right now. So if we get chosen for the finals, we will be one of between four and seven finalists. In the last part of the competition, we'll be at Jeanette's Pier at Nags Head, North Carolina. The final competition will be sometime in April of 2022. Jack's Plastic Welding offers a duffel-style dry bag that uses the traditional roll-top closer, keeping the access fast and easy. It comes in several sizes, and the shape of the main body allows it to swallow a lot of whatever you want to put in it. The layout of the D-rings on the bag allow it to be securely strapped to your deck and still be accessible. You can find Jack's Plastic online at www.jpwinc.com. That is www.jpwinc.com. How are people taking this this recycled water project this time around? I understand you've you've had some opposition to it in the past, to the idea of you know people saying no, we will not be consuming reused, cleaned toilet water. You know how how's it going this time? You're right. We had challenges in the past. In the 1990s, City of LA had a aggressive program, and someone ran for city council opposing it, and they called it the toilet to tap program, and it really it kind of killed it. But I think people are more enlightened now and more understanding that water recycling, that's just a normal process. The Colorado River that's gone through Las Vegas and other cities on the way down that's been recycled many times. And if you're in New Orleans, the Mississippi River has been recycled dozens of times. So right now, California only allows us to do indirect potable reuse, which means that we can treat the water to drinking water standards, but still as a precaution, we have to put it back in a groundwater basin or a raw water reservoir where it has to be uh, retreated before it can go back into our system. Our hope is to get regulations where we can put it right back into our delivery system. Bypass a process, you don't lose as much water and you can have more control right into the system. And, and the technology is there, we just haven't got the state permits yet, but that's something we're working on. We're hoping in the next five years, we'll, we'll have that, that ability to do that. Your timeline, I think, for, for really using the recycled water program, I understand it to be 2035. Do you think that you will compress that timeline? Well, our board hasn't made an official determination, right? So we're going through a two to three year environmental review process. And so we're going to get a real handle on the costs and the impacts and all of the issues associated with it. And then our board will take a vote. We're optimistic that I mean, our board's been very supportive, so we're optimistic our board will approve it at that time. It's gonna to be tough to accelerate it because the amount of work of putting the pipeline in and, and having to go into the cities and 
provide a temporary destruction, it's that that part's always challenging to have a new pipeline going through a, a fully built out area. And so it's we're going to have to go cautiously and work with our cities to make sure it's minimized disruption. So it's not going to be a race to the finish line. It's going to be do it right and try to minimize disruptions along the way. This conversation about recycled water was moving through the details about how Met was planning to work with Nevada to trade water and how water would be stored in Lake Mead. And that is really a great move to have more interstate collaboration regarding water usage. But I was drifting. I think I was struggling to listen to the description of these rivers as simply a plumbing system. I don't know what expression I had on my face as Bill talked about this part of the plan, but after a five-second pause, he caught me off guard with what he said to me. You don't seem convinced. I think it's all good, but I think the problem, the, the challenge that I see, you know, I, I, I start this podcast from being a river runner. There's a group of boaters who are looking at the most upper end of Lake Powell. It's called this Returning Rapids Project. And these are the kind of guys who've been down there hundreds and hundreds of times and have seen the impacts of Lake Powell when it was full and what it looked like then and now how it's just dropped, dropped, dropped. And the canyon is now coming back, meaning that the rapids that were in there are now coming back. And this is a place known for its rapids. And that was their excitement, was that these rapids are coming back. So they're taking pictures and they're telling people and they're making notes about it. And it's turned into this massive project that has all these scientists kind of coming with them on these trips. Because in addition to seeing the rapids come back, they're now doing photo matching to say, hey, look, here's, here's what this looked like in the early 1900s, this rapid. And here's what it's starting to look like again right now. And 2018, 2020, 2021. But what's different now is all the sediment is there. It's all piled up. You know, all the sediment that comes out of the mountains and across the desert that should be delivered from that place all the way to the Colorado River Delta at Baja. It's massively disrupted. So as a river runner myself, I was just down there two, two and a half weeks ago doing a trip and an interview. And it's, it's daunting to see the, the massive tonnage of sediment sitting there in these canyons that needs to be moved. The environmental impacts are just astounding that have happened, that are happening in the Grand Canyon because of it, that are happening below Mead and all these other dams. And then the water doesn't run to the ocean. It does not run down to Baja. These rivers are, they're, they're, they're not doing well. And they're not going to do better because of recycled water. So when I hear about these agreements, but for more water use and more growth and all this and recycled, I think it's brilliant. But there's still a side of me that, that, is, that struggles with the rivers are not really, they're not getting more water, just that the consumers are figuring out how to use less of the water they get because they're forced to. It's a very long statement around what I, what I, I guess is a question for you and for Matt. What do you guys say about that? You know, what's the relationship between environmental degradation, environmental improvement, and, you know, we're sitting on the 12th floor of a, of a building in downtown L.A., you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a far cry from where the rivers are, but if I could get a drink of water out here, these water fountains, we're drinking the water, that blend uh, from the Colorado and the Sacramento. What, what, what are you, what's going on? What's, what are you guys thinking about with that kind of stuff? Well, there's no doubt that the development of the rivers came at a different time when our values were different. The Colorado River is the biggest river that never reaches the ocean. Today, it wouldn't be developed like that. It wouldn't be developed with 
dams that don't take into account sediment or fish passage or anything like that. So we have a system that's been irreversibly damaged, changed, and we can't bring it back. We can't have people move out of the Southwest. We need to feed people and a lot of the damage is irreversible anyway. I mean, there's been talk about tearing down Glen Canyon Dam. If tearing down the dam, you would still have damage for, for, for centuries, right? So I think that realistically, as unfortunate as the damage has been, what we can do is to try to bring some of it back and minimize our impact going forward. Recent collaboration with the Basin States and Mexico resulted in a pulse flow in the Colorado River Delta to reconnect the delta. It was a test to see if it would work. It was done during the height of the last drought in 2015 when California again was struggling. We had mandatory 25% rationing and Lake Mead was going down to low levels, but nonetheless, 100,000 acre feet went out of Lake Mead to the Delta for environmental purposes. The test, I think, showed two things. One is how much there was a social connection to the river. The people in Mexico loved that event. It was so important to them. The environment came back. Trees that had, parts of the river that had been dry for a long time flourished. But we also saw that a lot of the water was lost in the ground. For the, a large release, only a trickle made it to the ocean. And to actually get a functioning delta with the groundwater up would take huge amounts of water. So reconnecting the river to the ocean is not a realistic long-term goal. But what can you do is there are small parts of this historic delta that was amazing 100 years ago that Aldo Leopold said you couldn't see the sky because the birds were so thick overhead. Can we at least bring parts of it back? Can we focus while the pie is shrinking? Can we cut out a little bit? And, and, and the answer, I think, is yes, as difficult as it is. And there are creative ways to do that. There are the environmental community has been helpful by buying water rights in Mexico, and Mexico has been helpful. We're getting water from Mexico by funding water conservation in Mexico and getting a portion of the water, and Mexico keeps a portion of the water. So we're growing the pie by funding conservation in Mexico. Both countries are benefiting. I could envision a system where any transaction involves adding water to Lake Mead as kind of a system tax, system benefit. But I could envision that the system tax would be for environmental purposes. If you do a water transfer, a certain percentage of it then is reserved for an environmental mitigation for something like the Colorado River Delta. So I, I think that the grand vision of bringing back something like the Delta is not realistic, but there are things that we can do by attaining water through some creative means and targeting it to certain key environmental places to bring back at least a portion of it so people can see what it's like and the environment will have a place to thrive. Small while we're still not changing, not having people move out of the Southwest and giving up food. We're also investing in the multi-species conservation plan, which is focused on bringing back habitat. You know, we can't bring back the river flows. We can't do a pulse flow through the lower basin. Lower basin now is more like a delivery channel than a river. But at least we can bring back habitat that the wildlife that used to rely on the river can go back there, the willow, willow flycatcher and others to provide habitat on a small scale. It, it is unfortunate that I would have loved to go to Lake Powell before it was built and seen the arches and seen everything there, but that, that ship has sailed. You're going to go to the table in 2025 and rework the Colorado Compact. 
I anticipate that there will just be new cuts, that every state will have to take some marked cuts that will be on that document. In the interview outline, I asked you the question that can Met deal with a 25% overall cut? And I don't mean just Met. You know, that's a all, all players in this Colorado Basin, all 39 million consumers getting a, a quarter cut. Is that something that's realistic? I mean, I, I guess I feel like that's what's going to be asked of and expected, not by any human, but by the natural systems. Do you expect that that's what's going to happen in that time? And could it be a larger cut so there could truly be a pulse flow annually every few years to support the, the Colorado Delta? Next year will be the 100th anniversary of the compact. We are renegotiating guidelines that implemented part of it, basically the operational rules. Not changing the compact, but changing shortages, surplus, operational rules, storage, things like that. So all those rules are going to be renegotiated. And you're right, the estimates are 10, 15, 20, 25% cutback. And with the reservoirs being where they are, that's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. We're not going to have a choice. We're going to have to come up with it. So we are going to figure out a plan to cut back our use. If 25% is necessary, yes. The success we've had on the river is that the states have been able to do that on their own without having a court step in or the federal government step in and say how it's going to work. Right? That's the fallback position. If the states can't agree, then Department of Interior will come in and say, here's how it's going to be. And that's not going to be good because then there'll be lawsuits. We've been able to avoid that by working together. It's going to be tougher as the cuts get bigger. Because while we can do it, the natural position is says, yeah, we can do it, but I want that other state or the other user to do it first or to do it bigger because my right's better or my use is for a higher use. That's the initial position. But I think everyone realizes if you can get past that, we will have to reduce our use. And that's where the challenge then comes in and says, okay, we're already going to have to cut back by 10, 20, 30%. Can you cut back a little bit more for the environment? I think the answer is yes, but under what, what's the incentive for doing that and, and how is it going to work? That, that's, that's the tougher piece because the environment doesn't have a seat at the table. Do you think it should? Well, I think the way it's set up is the states have a role. They are in charge of the water rights. So it's up to the states to reach out to their appropriate stakeholders. So what we've learned over the last 20 years you know, in 2007, it was really just the states and major water users that divvied up the whole guidelines of the river. You know, the states did the compact and the states did the guidelines. Mexico has become a key player. In 2012, they became proactive in managing their system to be more sustainable. In 2019, the Native American tribes have a, a bigger role, especially in Arizona, helping them to live with less water. And the environmental community was very helpful in that pulse flow. So they will all have roles, but ultimately it's the states that will make the call. So the states need to make sure and do outreach to those constituents to try to get broad support because it's much harder now if you don't have a broad solution to get anything passed. If the states can't have the NGOs support, the tribe support, Mexico support, then it's going to be a slam dunk. But if any one of those are not there, it's going to be harder. This is a no-joke situation here. The, the Met Water District is a very significant water district. You have, you have a lot of people working here. You have a $2 billion budget. You have a really enormous responsibility. So I assume 
that you have a team of people that is doing very focused work on what the climate will look like in 10, 20, 30, 100 years. What do you all see is coming for climate and water in the Southwest? Scary, <laughs> right? It's, it's a scary picture. When you look at the last few years, how quickly our lives have changed uh, and the reality has changed. I mean, the climate was slowly changing for many decades. You didn't notice it year to year. But now with last summer, the hottest temperatures recorded ever, LA, city of LA, 122 last summer, by far the hottest ever. Las Vegas has hit a record. Palm Springs was 123. And not just hot peaks, but hot for prolonged summers. Places that didn't need air conditioning because they were by the ocean now need air conditioning. The fires in California devastated California. In 2015, there was virtually no snow and by April 1st in Northern California. It's happening more quickly. And if the change becomes exponential, we're going to have to adapt much more quickly than we thought. And we'll have to change our way of life dramatically. Get rid of our lawns, pay a lot more than we're paying for our utilities, and really rethink the way we, we do everything from our consumption of fossil fuels to, to the way we eat. It's going to be a challenging time for everybody, not just on the water suppliers, but everyone in the Southwest and the world to adapt if this rate of change keeps growing like it's been doing. And that's, you see that that's what's coming. That's what the models are suggesting. That's what the science is telling us. And that's what we're seeing in reality. As, as I said at the beginning, hottest and driest year ever this last year for California, Arizona, and driest and second hottest in Utah and Nevada. That's a big part of the country to have the hottest and driest at the same time. That is not, and that's following a hot, dry year. It's not like in isolation. The word drought is used so often, and it suggests the idea that this is like these temporary heats, these temporary drynesses. Do you feel like that's an appropriate word to really encapsulate what is happening in the Southwest, or do you feel like there's a different word that more appropriately states the, the condition of our climate and our weather? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question that, that people bring up a lot. The one thing that is clear that I tell people is, because people see the bathtub ring at Lake Mead and they say, when's it going to fill up? I said, it's not going to fill up again. You'll never see it full again in your lifetime. The new reality is a third full Lake Mead is probably the most it's ever going to get in the future, right? Times have changed. So I think it's both a combination, what we're experiencing today is a combination of a general aridification. The last 20 years has been drier than the last century. So this, this century is 13.2 million acre foot of runoff. The last century was 15 million. And on top of that, we're seeing an acute two-year drought on top of that dryness in 2020 and 2021. In fact, right when the pandemic hit, it just seemed like that's when things dried up. We've had hardly any precipitation since March of 2020. And it's been boiling hot, hot and dry. And so we're having, on top of a general drying trend, a really acute two-year drought. Maybe it's going to stretch into next year, next year. That could really complicate things. But we're not, we're not going to go back to normal. We're not going to go back to last decade. We're not going to see Lake Mead and Lake Powell full again. We're not going to see the flows in the rivers that we saw in the past. That's clear. 
Is there anything else you want to talk about? I feel like, you know, I came here for the recycled water. I feel like I've gotten a lot of good info from you and definitely from Ruham yesterday. Is there anything else you want to talk about with the recycled water program that you feel like I'm not asking about that you feel like would be vital for the listeners? Well, for us, it represents a, a shift in what our core mission is. Our core mission has been bringing in water from faraway places and then incentivizing our member agencies to develop their own local projects, whether it's recycling or other. If we fund this, this would be the first time that we actually fund a, a large-scale project and we take a greater role on reducing our reliance on imported supply. So if we do that with this project, that will open the door to other projects that maybe right now are too big for any small agency to pursue. So I think it's a good model because we, we know that you can't go out and get more water anymore. It's got to be local. So it's got to be through water recycling. It's got to be through more efficient use, stormwater capture, and some amount of desalination. The more that Metropolitan, as a big agency, has a role in that, the more successful we'll be in doing that, I believe. A Colorado River Delta-sized thank you goes out to Bill Hazenkamp and the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California for welcoming these interviews. If you want to learn more about these topics, there are books, videos, articles, and websites all hyperlinked in the show notes. Reach out to us here anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Can you cut back a little bit more for the environment? We're not going to see Lake Mead and Lake Powell full again. Scary, <laughs> right? It's, it's a scary picture. That, that ship has sailed.